welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and we have the whole gang back together again. In studio in New York is our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. And our film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And then we also have on the line our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. It is so good to have us all back talking about a really busy couple of weeks. It's almost unfair that the Emmys in Toronto basically wrap up at the same time because it just gives us so much to discuss. So we're going to dive back into Toronto briefly to kind of talk about the huge amount of award season buzz that came from there and then wrap up our show talking about the Emmys and hopefully not just Sean Spicer because there were other things to discuss. So we had, we talked about Toronto last week. We were talking about the guys who were there, but I think maybe now that we've gotten past the festival, there's a festival awards handed out. We have a little bit more perspective and uh, Richard, I kind of wanted to start with you because I think you're the only person here who has seen the audience award winner at Toronto, which has a really interesting uh, history with the Oscars. No, I'm not. I missed it. Oh went, no! So none yeah. of us have seen three billboards outside go, Ebbing, Missouri. No, I I went to go see Mother, and there was a really tight turnaround time, and I thought that I could make three billboards right after, and then I didn't, and we got shut out, and I didn't like Mother at all, and I heard three billboards was great, so I'm I'm bummed. But we did have <laughs> Guy Lodge, of a wonderful freelance writer, review the movie pretty positively out of Venice, so. VF has yes. talked about the movie in some capacity. <laughs> yes. And so the, so the history with Toronto and the Audience Award, basically, I think it's uh, uh, eight of the last 10 Audience Award winners at Toronto have gone on to be Best Picture nominees. So all of a sudden, this kind of dark, profane movie from Mark McDonough, the director and writer of In Bruges. I, I mean, do you guys feel like it's now like basically a guaranteed Best Picture nominee? I mean, it certainly could be. The, re- the reception in Toronto was strong, although I felt it was a little muted. I think it got kind of swallowed up that day in terms of press reaction because of Mother and everyone was just kind of, you know, screaming and, you know, what theorizing about that movie. Um, but yeah, I think the Audience Award certainly helps. And I also, you know, that movie is not out for, I think, till November. So it has time to build up kind of momentum separate of Toronto. But yes, again, that Grolsch audience prize uh, has has definitely done good or, or indicated good things for movies in the past, like Imit game or La La Land. It's so cool to me, uh, having seen like the original production of the Beauty Queen of Lean Ann and yeah. being like, you know, which was his play from 1996 and being kind of like, uh, this guy's amazing. Or, and and to see his evolution in Bruges is a cult favorite, but obviously, you know, I don't think it, ha- it had any awards impact, did it? Um, uh, Golden Globe for Colin Farrell, but that okay. was it. All right. Yeah. yeah. And, and McDonough and, didn't get a screenwriting. Didn't he get a screenwriting? nomination for something he's won an oscar he won a short film oscar uh before he had a feature directing career um so he definitely has a track record there Uh, he was nominated for for screenplay but yet i mean he is such a brilliant dark uh incredible creator that's very exciting unique uh, that it's very exciting to think yeah he's gonna push in and given like the competition in Toronto like how can how can that not be meaningful that there were there were so many i mean audience awards can be fickle and weird but like those people watched a lot of movies over the course of those that week and a half or whatever it is. A couple things. I just want to echo what, what Hogan said about like, if you've never seen a McDonough play, you really need to go see a production because like, like for the production of Lieutenant of Inishmore that I saw, they had to install a grate in the front of the stage to catch all the fake blood that comes gushing down. Every <laughs> single, um, production, the pillow man's great. You know, like McDonough is just a genius and in and a genius with language and um, what someone I know likes to call the F patois like the 
wears <laughs> in his work is amazing. And so I'm really, I've been really excited about three billboards. I'm so thrilled that it got this uh, push out of Toronto. And it, does this feel like a Frances McDormand push as well? Like, is this another Oscar option for her? Well, Richard mentioned Guy Lodge's review, which was really a lot about Francis McDormand mm-hmm. and, and I think he starts by saying like when's the last time we really really looked at Francis McDormand this kind of uh, you know legend and and cherished actress kind of hiding in plain sight in a lot of roles yeah uh, and so for her to have center stage it certainly could feel very much like a like a best actress at least nomination yeah I mean it it's another crowded field this year for actresses yeah. you know and and there were many performances at Toronto that you know, I think that there was a lot of buzz that maybe I, Tanya, the Craig Gillespie film, would win the audience prize because that was received pretty well. Some of us <coughs> did not care for that movie, but many did. Some of did. us did. Some of us did. So, you know, K- Katie reviewed the, it on, on the site for us and people should read that. And so I don't know. I don't know. I think that Three Billboards winning an audience prize, yes, that gives a higher profile to Francis McNorman than it does say to Margot Robbie. And I think really from I, Tanya, for example... Allison Janney has a better shot now than Robbie does, but but I don't know. Maybe they both do. Yeah, I Tanya being the runner up in the audience award, which uh, right. and then the third place was Call Me by Your Name, which we've been discussing here since Sundance, and is another. It's a, you know, a a very different kind of crowd pleaser than I Tanya, and also has a lot of contenders in it. I think that's pretty cool that it that it got in there at all. You know, I, I thought yeah. that movie mm-hmm. might be a little bit too inaccessible for people, and apparently it wasn't. You know, that's that speaks. I think that speaks well to the the audience in, in, at the festival, the public audience. You know, who voted for that. I think that's, yeah. that's pretty cool. Don't you think more awards should announce what the runners up were? Yes. Like I think that's that's fascinating. We that's should, a we good idea. Let's get that going for the Oscars, I think. <laughs> yeah, Richard, you and I did kind of a, yeah. a Toronto wrap-up last week talking about just by Oscar categories because that is our obsession. And I wrote about the Best Actress category and just about the fact that uh, from Toronto, there were five Oscar winners and four previous nominees all getting buzz for their lead actress performances, which is nuts. And then you yeah. have Margaret Robbie, who's like a gigantic star. So you have Frances McDormand, you had Emma Stone in Battle of the Sexes, which we've been talking about, Saoirse Ronan and Lady Bird, Jessica Chastain, Jennifer Lawrence, Emma Thompson. It's going to be another one of those years where there's just too many to choose from and then probably some performance none of us really care that much for gets in anyway should we right. just really quickly in the wake of like the re- actual um public reception of mother like do you think that jennifer lawrence would get a nomination for that given the very mixed reaction out in the world i think no but i guess anything is possible i would say no except you know the academy likes her a lot uh, yeah. I, I think that the combination, though, of the F cinema score and the not great box office yeah. and the release date, it's just like I think that that movie is going to be forgotten by the time. And I, it doesn't seem like Paramount is going to maybe they, I, maybe they'll go for like Matthew Libatique cinematography or yeah. something kind of like that. But I think that in a year that's so crowded to spend the money on a Lawrence campaign, if they had to do that when it's really unlikely that you know I, I don't know i don't see that happening maybe i'm gonna put my put my flag down early on mother for a sound design oh oscar. sure is that is that the oscar category <laughs> it's a, we're sound mixing and sound editing sound, and yeah i have already forgotten my hard one knowledge every season of what the difference between the two is so i don't know which one it would editing is the creating of this the effects and the mixing is how they it all plays in relation to each other in the mixing because because uh, you know there's a there's an interview up on our set right now about how mother doesn't actually have a score which is something that i like sort of hinted a couple weeks ago on this podcast mother doesn't have a score they just used the sounds in the movie to score it and uh it's a really creepy effect i mean your mileage 
mileage may vary on the movie. That's fine. But like, that's an ambitious and interesting thing to do. Well, the other thing worth noting about Mother is that uh, Paramount's other two big players in the season were Suburbicon and Downsizing, which Mm. I think we talked about some last week, both came in for some pretty rough reception in Toronto. So they, I don't know, they might default to rallying behind Mother. Although I do think Downsizing could have a second win closer when it actually comes out. But I also think uh, when it comes to Mother, Jennifer Lawrence would have to presumably sign on to be like, yes, I would like to go for this uh, nomination. And I just can't see her doing it in light of the entire thing around this. You know, like she and her boyfriend worked on a crazy project. It got totally hammered by audiences. It didn't make any money. Like at that point, don't you just kind of say like, okay, let's think of something else to do. Yeah. And she doesn't, she didn't want to do it for American hustle. You know, like she, she, there were like things like whispers that she was like, I hope I don't win. I hope I don't, I hope I don't even get nominated. Like she has her thing. I don't think she wants that kind of attention, especially for something like this. You're right. Yeah. I think, I think that's probably unrealistic at this stage. So as we continue our Toronto wrap up, I basically kind of made myself a list of uh, the films that feel to me like they could be best picture nominees at this point. I think the general consensus is that it's hard to really pick a winner, although maybe we can debate that. Um, but just going through the list of what was out of Toronto, um, it seems to me, and uh, I'm interesting in debating this, that uh, Call Me By Your Name, I just feel like that's the best picture nominee at this point, As even though, Richard, like you were saying, we were worried it wasn't going to... Uh, resound as much with audiences as with critics. Yeah, I mean, I think I I think that that now is firmly in the mix, and I I also think you know I, I I'm I think Stuhlbarg is almost assuredly going to get get a nomination. Although that's a really the supporting actor is a big category this year too. But I did something similar to you, Katie, where I even went even further and I sort of decided what the four winners were going to be of the acting prizes. Oh. <laughs> and I decided yes, Gary Oldman, Michael Stuhlbarg, Sally Hawkins, and Allison Janney. Uh, and one thing that I missed in Toronto that a lot of us missed was this movie, The Wife with Glenn Close. Mm-hmm. And people are really now kind of, those who have seen it are saying that that movie, we shouldn't count that out. So, we, you know, so we add that to the list. And, and yeah, I don't know. I think the more, the further we get from Toronto in a weird way, the more you step back, it's like, oh, there were a ton of Oscar things there. It, more so yeah. than it seemed on the ground necessarily. I think The Wife premiered after a lot of people had left town. And uh, just remember that Glenn Close got an Oscar nomination for Albert Knobs, a movie that no one remembers and not many people liked at the time. So there's definitely a... I mean, she's never won an Oscar. There's definitely a desire to reward her in there. And I believe that would be her seventh nomination. Wow. Wow. Um, Well, Richard, you mentioned Sally Hawkins. I think The Shape of Water was another big... uh, It it premiered at Venice. It won the uh, major prize at Venice and then uh, played at Toronto. It was kind of a big crowd pleaser. A lot of people thought it might be the audience award winner. I'm still... I haven't seen the film yet, but I have this, like, sense of hesitation about, like, a monster movie love story being an Oscar play. But uh, am I crazy for hesitating here? I mean, I don't think so. I think that winning Venice, like, that's a good sign. Like, I think that the movie has... It's dark in aspects, but it has a kind of uplifting romantic ultimately kind of you know thematic pull to it so it's not alienating in 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 any sort of um you know it's it's nice it's a nice movie it's a comforting movie um and i think that could take it a long way i yeah i obviously think there are going to be voters um and audience members who are put off by some of its gory violence by some of its sort of you know outside the mainstream um sexuality but uh i think it's safely enough within a certain kind of acceptable mainstream boundary that yeah i think that movie is you know, in a, in a world where there could be 10 nom- Best Picture nominations, for sure, I think that movie's in the mix. Yeah, I guess it's worth remembering that Pan's Labyrinth got six nominations and three wins, uh, Yeah, which is itself a monster movie, I guess, from Guillermo del Toro. So, And something really dark happens at the end of Pan's Labyrinth, so, you know, uh, and then still, it still made it into 
the running. So, and speaking of both Michael Stuhlberg and the Best Supporting Actor category, of from what I hear, Richard Jenkins, who is a previous Oscar nominee, is really outstanding in Shape of Water alongside Sally Hawkins. Yeah, he's great. And and I I now have this internal war between him and Stuhlberg in my sort of heart. You know, <laughs> why who, who choose? Like so why choose? I know. I mean, just give give it to them both. Yeah, have a runner up. Like. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> That's why we need the runners up. Well, and so just going back to your list of all the, the acting Oscar winners, which all sound dead on to me, Richard, um, you mentioned Gary Oldman, who is in The Darkest Hour. I think ever since that film played at Telluride, we've talked about how it just kind of seems like the best actor Oscar is his. And now that I've seen the movie, I wouldn't object to that. But that movie, even though uh, Mike and I saw it at the premiere and it was kind of a like a late night weird screening, I think, but it does seem like it came out of Toronto with the buzz it needs to, to be a contender to. How did it go over in your audience? Did people seem into it? We had terrible seats. And I genuinely think that affected it mike i don't know how the, you felt walking out of it i was also yeah. exhausted but i i mean people like were so rapturous at other screenings and ours felt so muted i think because we were just shoved over in a weird corner yeah i think well i don't know did you have hard a hard time understanding people yeah. speaking <laughs> yes i think that gary oldman does such a real churchill accent that sometimes yeah. you don't know you can't understand what he's americans saying. are like kind of, not yeah, yeah it, and it's uh whereas lithgow you know just won the emmy for the same character right is is clearly kind of like <laughs> tilting it toward a, a more international audience or an american audience right and Maybe partly because of where we were sitting, partly because of just the, I guess you could say, you know, exactitude of that performance. There were times where I was like, there's just a crazy old man shouting a lot in this movie. <laughs> a, tr- a crazy drunk old man. A crazy drunk old man <laughs> yeah. just kind of shouting a lot, you know? Yeah. And I don't know that it benefits from the Dunkirk comparison actually i Uh thought i had originally heard oh people won't even care about dunkirk after they see this and it's so different it's so built around a performance but dunkirk suddenly felt more of an achievement after i watched this than it had previously i I thought you know what i mean because because the darkest hour is so hermetically sealed inside of parliament inside of churchill's house whereas dunkirk you're kind of like you're there you're seeing like the people these gorgeous young doomed people yeah Uh, Yeah. so so i don't know it's they're very interesting as companion pieces um and i think that katie and i were uh exhausted and did were like way over to the side of the theater but it was it was interesting i didn't i didn't necessarily come out of there I, i came out of there going yes ticks all the boxes i could easily see gary goldman winning this and certainly as a career capper type of a thing i mean he's a total legend and you think of the trajectory of sid vicious to winston churchill that's pretty amazing yeah. with a, with dracula in between somewhere yeah but i didn't <laughs> I, I will admit that i didn't have that full i, I was reminded a little of dracula too by the way <laughs> yeah. uh, by the makeup but i was i didn't have the full like like daniel day lewis and lincoln experience different kind of character too yeah Here's a question. Should we, should we, I don't know, learn some lessons from the Oscars last year and maybe take more seriously this idea that they have like a younger, hipper, more diverse field of voters and wonder if this transformative Gary Ullman under piles of very convincing makeup is like the kind of performance that used to earn Oscars, but is it still the kind of performance that earns Oscars? It's a great question, and I, but I, and I think that it's not really an answer to it. But okay, so let's look at who else might be in the mix, um, you know. And to say, well, you know, a Daniel Day Lewis performance in a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, like that's that's pretty outside. But it, it's not because Daniel Day Lewis has won three Oscars, right? So like, so so I don't. So he's not really outside the norm either. And then you look at down to like I, Timothy Chalamet for calling by 
call me by your name that would be ra- kind of a radical change he's yeah. young he's in this kind of gay movie you know like but i don't see that gary oldman's main competition which is this kind of theoretical ddl performance that no one's seen as being really any sort of newer newfangled kind of performance you know it's yeah more I, the well, also the thing that gary oldman has is he has an enormous amount of like cool factor and cred i think with a younger audience partly because of just the incredible career he's had and the choices he's made you know yeah. i think he's a lot of younger cool actors look up to him like you yeah know, people like tom hardy like he's he's the man right so i don't know that it, that it hurts him as much as it might hurt some truly sort of like stultifying old guy you know right. gary oldman is like yeah, a yeah. complete bad ass who played Churchill yeah. and, and had to be, you know, and he's like a, got a Cockney accent and yeah, is like yeah. smoking behind the theater. Because of the hype, like I didn't go, I didn't come out of there going, wow, like slam dunk on every single level, but it's an absolutely incredible performance. Yeah. I think it's almost technically so good that it's hard to understand what he's saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also think that in, in oddly in Oldman's favor, his problematic stuff that playboy interview he gave a few years ago that's already out that's been processed people have you know he's sort of addressed it it's kind of over and done it's not like charlotte rampling is going to say something you know like you know she said something while on the award circuit like i feel like oldman's era of that is is kind of over it maybe you know and i don't even remember what it was what was it again? he kind of like he sort of like was like ah, Mel Gibson. What was it? You know, people say that kind of stuff in private all the time, and like stuff like that. Like he oh, was okay. like a, being a little bit of an apologist for for some. Not that was great on the life. Tinker Taylor tour, right? I think. Right. Um, yeah. The the I mean, after Casey Affleck won, like weathered the controversy storm last year and won anyway. I don't know. It's hard for me to take a right. lot of controversy seriously. Yeah. Yeah. So the last thing that I want to get into from Toronto that was kind of on my on my list of things that I think could get Best Picture nominations. This is actually three movies. Uh, but A24 had three pretty sizable audience hits at Toronto. They had Lady Bird, The Florida Project, and then The Disaster Artist, which I think might have been the most surprising kind of big hit. My rule of thumb is just that it's hard for a single studio to get two Best Picture nominees, especially when you're kind of a smallish studio like A24. But I mean, what do we do? I, I feel like all three of these are possibilities, and I can't really decide which would be the likeliest to make it in oh um that's a yeah <laughs> I, I mean i i think that i don't know post toronto ladybird feels people are really into that movie whether that's just a critical darling or if it will resonate beyond that you know i certainly think that there is precedent with something like juno 10 years ago um, you know, you know, because my thought was like, well, you know, movies about teenagers—that's rare. Well, it, it is rare, but it did happen ten years ago. Um, with this very in- individual voice writing it, you know, um, not directing it, and that was Jason Reitman, but he was kind of considered new and hot at the same t- at the same time too. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, he was um, fresh off. Thank you for smoking. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, I also think you know, uh, a twenty four had Le- Lean on Pete, and and that movie that's probably not going to go much further in terms of Oscar stuff, but that kid, Charlie Plummer, like he won a special award at Venice. Like, I don't know. I, it, it, it could, it could, it could do something. My, my feeling with the disaster artist is that it's going to like, because it's, um, you know, sideways, still a movie about making movies, which we always talk about how much the award season loves those movies. I feel like it's going to show up big at the Golden Globes, right? And then I think it's going to... Oh, because it'll be a comedy at the Golden Globes? Because it'll... Yeah, it'll be a comedy at the Golden Globes. And then I would say like screenplay, possibly, something like that. Do you know? But I don't know about... Best actor feels super possible to me. I I know you guys have seen the movie and I haven't. 
I I think it feels possible. And also, you know, speaking of speaking to your question, Joanna, there's a performance that sure it's a it's a straight white guy, but like it's a it's in a weird self referential kind of meta comedy. Like that would be a pretty interesting new form of of a best actor win you know like a Mar- martin landau for edward sort of situation yeah. yeah yeah sure yeah except not this venerable old actor they've been wanting to give an award to right. for a while it's, you know it's the guy who ruined their broadcast like seven years ago when they asked him to host <laughs> <laughs> which is a fascinating oh, oscar turnaround <laughs> i will never truly forget. never forget <laughs> katie is carrying that flame you know what anne hathaway really deserved better <laughs> So it's, it sounds like what you're saying, Richard, is that A24 is going to be busy, but that they they kind of have a path for this. Like, obviously, they won Best Picture last year. They are really as on top of their game as anyone could be. I mean, why not try for all three? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're they've got the 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 mojo behind them. They're you know, they're they're having this wonderful moment. And I, and I, I don't see them not trying to capitalize that on some way. You know, their sort of awards campaign strategy has thus far been pretty unintrusive it's been kind of cool and mellow you know but though persistent you know so i don't see them i think they'll repeat that same thing this year you know um and and they have good reason to here's what i'm not sure i want and i feel like katie's gonna back me up on this (laughs) if the florida project gets in there as some sort of contender i don't need its young star brooklyn prince like on every awards carpet I that is not my favorite thing of award season. Uh, Jacob Tremblay redux. So I, like there was a lot of fawning over her out of Toronto, and I'm like she's a child. Like I don't I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, not my favorite thing. <laughs> I mean that does seem to be mostly about Willem Dafoe, but you know I guess he's not as cute as a adorable child. <laughs> well, Richard, you've seen you've seen the Florida Project, and I've I've had a hard time kind of getting a read on the extent to which it's similar to Tangerine, which was Sean Baker's last film, which so many people loved, but was kind of always obviously not going to be quite in the Oscar wheelhouse. Even this new hipper Oscars is a Florida Project more accessible. Yeah, because it's not about trans women of color <laughs> you know i mean it's about people who are living on the fringes of society but they're white and they you know like it's it's unfortunately it's more it's it's just it's more mainstream quote-unquote tangerine had a great run and and it deserved it and it was you know it's a nice movie um more than nice it's a it's a really well done movie and florida project is the same thing it has the same vibe it has it, it doesn't feel exploitative of um, a lot of non-professional actors who themselves are not necessarily coming from the exact situation depicted in the movie but maybe something close it feels empathetic and sincere yeah and they add a little star power with with willem dafoe but if willem dafoe is your like you know, <laughs> is your name you know, brand star yeah like you're, you're it, okay it's not you know you're not you're not being too bad about that yeah and i think the movie also has this as, as tangerine did has this really gorgeous ending but then by the end it, it kind of gets where it's been going and you realize that the movie was actually saying something pretty big the whole time and in that i think that you know if you send the audience out on a high note or a, a big note of feeling i think that can go a long way similarly to hostels a movie that i saw that might have been my last movie at toronto that i missed at telluride and it's a fine western but then the last scene is so gorgeous with this swelling max richter music and it's just this beautiful closing shot that you're that you kind of leave thinking like you saw something profound and maybe the same was true of florida project 
Is uh, is Hostels out this year? Do we know yet? Does not have dis- distribution yet, I don't believe. I think the problem is it went into Telluride without that, and that's pretty rare for Telluride. It's not rare at Toronto, but there was actually an article in Variety recently about how the buyer's market at Toronto has gotten kind of weird, and especially with a movie like Hostels, which costs $40 million to make. Holy um, cow. Yeah, Scott Cooper. I think it's $40 million. He, he He cobbled. It's just, you know, Western Vistas. It was a big production. He cobbled the money together in kind of unorthodox ways. So, yeah, we'll see if it I mean, I, I, it's looking like I mean, it won't come out this year, but who knows? It's also got a uh, Timothy Chalamet in there and Man of the Hour, who's also in uh, Lady Bird. Yeah. Three movies at Toronto. Look yeah. At him. Not bad for not barely being able to drink. Maybe just one more thing as as we wrap up Toronto. Uh, and I think I wrote this in our in our wrap up last week, Richard, that um, Dunkirk kind of emerged with buzz because Christopher Nolan showed up to screen it in an IMAX and which to me reads as kind of like shameless awards campaigning. But I mean, I'm sure the people who got to see it in the beautiful IMAX theater in Toronto were grateful. That still feels to me like if I had to pick a best picture winner today, that would be the one which is rare after you see so many movies at Toronto. Richard and Joanna, do you guys agree? I think in terms of like, unless there's some sort of call, you know, calling by your name disruption uh, when it hits the mainstream like audiences, it does feel it's so funny because it's not it's not as safe of a movie as it seems on the surface because of the way it plays with time and subjectivity, Dunkirk. But it does feel like it was so popular and so critically acclaimed and it's just a really good movie and and ticks those like war movie boxes and stuff like that so i would say right now yes dunkirk yeah i i could see that i mean i again it has the problem of coming out so you know so much time before the the voting happens like months and half a year before but that doesn't necessarily mean anything you know and yeah it's it's i think it's sort of universally liked as both a statement of bravery in the face of, you know, blank, but also is such a technical achievement. And also it's Nolan's time, you know, I think it has a lot going for it. Um, I wonder though, if it's, it's a little bit lacking in sentiment, um, you know, is him showing up at TIFF a signal that like, he's really going to try for it. Cause like Christopher, I don't have a cell phone or email Nolan, like never really <laughs> struck me as like, I'm really going to pull out all the stops to campaign. But is him like, does him showing up at TIFF signal something for you? It's hard to read someone's mind personally, especially someone like Christopher Nolan, who obviously has a lot going for him. Like an Oscar is not going to like give him some great leap in his career. He's already achieved about as much as anyone can. But it indicates to me that he thinks it's worth it, that he thinks it's possible and is kind of willing to go with what his studio and his campaigners want to do and, you know, presumably get more eyeballs on the movie as a result. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I I think that I was talking to... um some actors uh, in in Toronto, uh, and uh, and they were kind of telling me, you know, they they they're they're pretty, you know, they they know people, and they were like, they all want it, every single one of them, you know, well, and sure. they might they might show it in different ways, they might not have cell phones, they might do, you know, whatever, but like they, so yeah, I think that certainly the Toronto appearances. I mean, we who do not do work that is eligible for an Oscar all want an Oscar. So I guess it's not such a stretch. I'm still mortified by this to this day. In my high school yearbook, my senior yearbook, there was a section that said ambition and mine just said to win an Oscar, (laughs) which is just the most 
Ugh. I'm going to be really excited for you when you do for like best yeah. adapted screenplay. Yeah. Yeah. Of, Richard yeah. Lawson. There you go. Of, of your own novel. There I'll you adapt go. my own book, which I have not plugged on this podcast, by the way. Oh, I, I just thought I'd do book? it for you. Yeah, we'll do it in February. When it's Should we give you an Oscar for achievement in withholding on uh, plugging your book on a podcast? Yeah. <laughs> and sidestepping those name drops earlier. Yeah. I'm speaking to some actors. <laughs> well, I want to speak to them in the future, so I'm not going <laughs> to. Yeah, make them be guests on the podcast and then we can reveal their identity. There we go. This year, I'm going to eat better and spend less time and money at the grocery store thanks to ButcherBox. ButcherBox is the meat delivery subscription that gives me more time for what matters most. Each month, they send a box of the highest quality meats for a better price in the grocery store, which gives me more time to spend cooking and sharing delicious meals with friends and family. Each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of high quality meat right to my home. All meat is free of antibiotics and hormones. Each box has 9 to 11 pounds of meat, which is enough for 24 individual meals. It's packed fresh and shipped frozen and vacuum sealed so that it always stays that way. I can customize my box or go with one of theirs. Either way, I get exactly what I want. ButcherBox is really the most affordable and convenient way to get healthy, humanely raised meat. With ButcherBox, you get the highest quality meat for just about $6 a meal. And they even have free shipping nationwide, except for Alaska and Hawaii. So start your year off right with up to 10 pounds of free meat. For a limited time, ButcherBox is offering new members their ultimate keto bundle when you sign up today. That includes one pork butt, two pounds of ground beef, and three pounds of bone-in chicken thighs for free in the first box by going to butcherbox.com slash cadence. That's butcherbox.com slash cadence. So we've lost Mike, but we want to go ahead and talk about the Emmys, which hopefully by the time this airs don't just feel like they happened 100 years ago, which tends to happen with award shows. Uh, but it was an interesting night. We kind of talked a long time in the lead up about how Game of Thrones wasn't going to be there and it was going to shake things up. But I'm not sure. Did any of us actually predict that The Handmaid's Tale was going to run away as the success of the night? No, I think the narrative going in was that this is going to be like a big night for broadcast television because This Is Us is going to come like win a bunch of dramatic awards and really like, you know, prove to everyone that, that you know, without Game of Thrones in contention, the networks have a fighting chance. No, and they do Hulu, not. And then Hulu's like, psych! <laughs> um, and, you know, what the big story, I mean, the big story being not just that The Handmaid's Tale won, which actually like a lot of people, uh, I'll say this, on Gold Derby, I think things were were pretty split between This Is Us and Handmaid's Tale with like more people predicting This Is Us, but Handmaid's Tale still like not out of left field, I'll say. But, you know, with its topical political nature and, and all, and it's, you know, Elizabeth Moss being like top of her field in TV acting and all that sort of stuff. Um, all that being said, like I would love to be a fly on the wall of like the Netflix party or <laughs> Netflix the next day. The fact that they've poured just a gajillion dollars into their original programming and Hulu is the first streaming service to walk away with the big Emmy is a big story of the night. So yeah. And Stranger Things didn't win uh, anything. It won like know, opening credits and editing. Like none of the none of the broadcast award that night but uh some some technical awards and stuff like that yeah it, it was a it was a really interesting night it was pretty much lockstep big little lies handmaid's tale and snl with like a few outliers in there like black mirror and sterling k brown veep yeah 
But those were like the three big winners. Uh, and, and for Big Little Lies in SNL, it's wholly unsurprising for Handmaid's Tale. A little surprising, but still not like incredible. But something that I've heard people talking about in the aftermath, which I found really interesting, is the Emmys are starting to look, uh, you know, without Game of Thrones in the mix, which, you know, for the last two years has made the Emmys a little bit boring, at least in the drama category, because we just all know who's going to win. That means now we're really looking at what the Emmys look like in the era of peak TV with so many options. And someone, um, I think it was on the Watch podcast, I think it was Alison Herman from The Ringer, but she brought up this idea of like Oscar bait TV show, which is something we maybe have to start considering because in the past, I feel like the Emmy nominations were like these, these certain favorites that were back every year, like, you know, Mad Men or uh, Breaking Bad or, you know, the shield going back or Frasier or whatever it is. And, and now with monk. T- monk, monk, you know, that classic monk, but now with peak TV with so many options and with so much star power behind certain options, um, it might be that we see sort of something a little bit different different every year uh you know veep is not going to be in contention next year so the comedy category opens up and so uh you know then looking at what makes an emmy favorite might be different now it's not the same old classics you see year after year it's like who has the most muscle who has put together the most alluring package which is oscar combination uh oscar talk and that's that's really, I mean, that's really fascinating to me. It seems to me really clear that that's happening in the limited series category, where this year we had Big Little Lies. Last year it was People versus O.J. Simpson, that like every year you kind of get like an Oscar-worthy cast and director and just run it for a little while and you don't have to have everyone commit to this long series. But I'm really intrigued by how that might play out in something like, like you say, Veep's not going to be around next year. Like how does a TV comedy compete like that? Yeah, I mean, I think what we're seeing is, you know, with with prizes for Donald Glover, with prizes for Lena Waithe and Aziz Ansari, is the rise of and and these are like sort of I don't know, not Louis imitators, but in the model of Louis, the rise of the very specific point of view comedy. A tourist uh, comedy. Oh, a tourist comedy, which you see from the likes of like uh, Pamela Adlon and Better Things. I don't think I, that's my favorite version of it because maybe because I'm a white female and it's very much from my point of view, but like, <laughs> you know, yeah, a, a tourist comedy. And so I think Hogan talked about this a couple weeks ago, sort of the unfairness of the, of the triple threat comedian so like julia louis dreyfus is just going to keep winning but without her there then you've got someone like pamela adlon who directed her entire series and wrote it and started it and so then then that's like unfair almost to put her up against someone who just showed up to act you know what i mean like so that that's what the future of the comedy series without veep uh looks like to me i don't know what do you think richard yeah, I mean, I think that um, certain wins, you know, were encouraging, and I think that it's it's it, it was a long slog to get the Academy, uh, the Television Academy, to actually pay attention to stuff that was not, you know, sort of just put right in front of them. And maybe that stuff is now being put right in front of them. That's that's what's changed. It's not that they've moved; it's that the industry has moved to sort of cater to them. I don't know, but um, but I think yes, there was a breadth of of winners, and and I think that it will be nice next year when um, you don't. I mean, I, you know, there, there's been a certain argument that like shows or actors on shows should kind of take themselves out of the running after they've won. I think it was like twice or something like, okay, you know, you've won for this performance. Now give someone else a chance. And I think that maybe there will start to be more of that kind of happening 
na- organically with you know like you know something like Tatiana Maslany winning last year and that was just kind of one off and then you know Elizabeth Moss this year and maybe who knows next you know or like Rami Malek last year which is yeah exactly like and look that happened in Emmys in the year in years ago too but you used to ha- you know you had Kelsey Grammer winning every year you had Tony Shalhoub winning every year you had the West Wing you know you there was a there was much more of a sameness and I think that we're seeing that break up now that said who's to say that another you know breaking bad doesn't come along or another i mean hbo would love if another game of thrones came along but you know what i mean like something where it just becomes a juggernaut and what i think makes that conversation more interesting is that we have more and more limited series we have more series that aren't going to come around every year it's going to be you know maybe every 18 months and so so i just does feel like there is variety entering the picture and you know i think that's exciting what that means in terms of relevance to your average emmy viewer you know there are so many more shows to watch now it used to be that if you watched the the big five shows on television you kind of knew everything at the emmys now not so yeah it's it's interesting that you talk about people taking themselves out of contention because there is pre- you know like john larroquette did that years ago after winning four times candace bergen also took her out of herself out of contention after winning five times so there is this question of like is it un dignified for Julia Louis-Dreyfus not to take herself out of contention. But at the same time, like, I I go back and forth on this because I really when she gets up there and she like it feels nice to win she's so nice about it she's un like undeniably talented so it's hard to like get mad about it. And it boosts the profile of her show you know it like helps get more people to watch Veep in theory. You you wish that there was like room for other people to get in there um you know that 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 her streak has meant that people like Amy, uh, Amy Polo never won for parks and recreation or something like that. But um, but you know she's just like it's so funny because she she goes up there and it's not any of this like fake like oh I don't deserve this or me again or anything like that. It's just like every year she goes up and she's just like yep. This is I get yep here it is. I'm, <laughs> me. I'm the queen of comedy. <laughs> it's me, and not in an obnoxious way, just in a sort of like, yep, you're great. Go rock on, you know. So like, I think it would be. I mean, she's only got one year left. They're not, uh, you know, they're not going to be in contention next year. I think because of, I believe because of scheduling. So you know, I wouldn't begrudge her like, ha- you know, getting it in her final year if she wants it. But um, it will be interesting to see who who steps up in her absence next year. Yeah. And I also think that, you know, I, I know she she did win an Emmy for New Adventures of Old Christine, I believe. And that was sort of like people saying, oh, the Seinfeld curse is finally broken, right? But now Veep has really confirmed that, you know, any idea that there was a Seinfeld curse is, well, I mean, at least for her, I mean, you, you know, to say nothing of Jason Alexander and um, uh, the other one whose name Michael is Richards. Michael Richards. <laughs> Kramer. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there might be some, I don't know, I'm just armchair psychologist here, but like there might be some like every year is a kind of reaffirmation that she's past that era when people were like, you're done, like you had your thing and it's over and you're, you know, you're only however 30 something years old, you know, so maybe now like there, this is kind of more further validation of the fact that like she's established herself, which, you know, I can understand the psychology behind that. But like, I think it'll be really nice next year to have someone else in the mix. 
it's interesting because um, you know Rebecca Keegan wrote this great piece about how Game of Thrones really changed uh, the way in which genre television is considered for for awards races. And um, I've heard it's so interesting. I've heard some people in the wake of the Handmaid's Tale sweeping a bunch of the you know Bruce Miller won, the showrunner won, uh, Reed Morano won, the director. Uh, you know, for it to rack up so many awards, some people are like, oh, you know, yeah, sure, reward the establishment. I mean, I don't know why Handmaid's Tale is now being considered an establishment show but like that's a lot of the narrative that i've heard but this is like this is a hard i mean it is an adaptation of a classic novel but it's a it's a hard genre show it's still a genre show you know and black mirror winning two awards that's just a genre show and so uh stranger things may not have won and for that i am kind of grateful because while i like the show i find uh the outsides buzzed around it like kind of insufferable but the you know, genre without Game of Thrones, genre still showed up big time at the Emmys this year. But speaking of Black Mirror, I regret that I underestimated the power of San Junipero when I did our predictions for limited series. I just didn't think that they would think of uh, kind of one episode of a Netflix series as a TV movie. And I was wrong, which I guess I just says another way that the TV Academy has really changed their minds. Uh, so all credit to San Junipero, even though I'd like no stuff better from that season. So while I was watching the Emmys, I really couldn't help but think about the Oscars because that's how my brain works. And I, Richard, I think I talked to you about this briefly, about how kind of the, the diversity in the winners, even though there were plenty of white people and white guys winning, that there was kind of this effortless sense of like, yeah, we can just give, uh, you know, the first black woman nominated for writing television is going to win an Emmy. And we're just, that's just going to be a thing. It's not going to happen. And it's hard to imagine the Oscars being able to do that so easily. Why is it so hard for movies to get it together the same way television is doing slowly? Well, I think that television, it works on a different schedule. It's, 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 I don't know, for whatever reason, it just seems to exist less in a vacuum. Funding has, is, comes from a more sort of direct way. It, it, I, I just think that they're, they're a little bit more, they're, they're a little bit quicker on their feet, you know, and, and I think that's, that's been true for a while. I think that, you know, I also think that it, there is a sort of existential crisis happening in film, you know, right now where the, the middle has fallen out and it's, you know, it's really hard to get people to see smaller movies, et cetera, et cetera, that maybe all of that kind of navel gazing worry has not given them the, the opportunity to really look out and to face out and to see, you know, to address stuff like that. Whereas television is basking in this glow of its go- second golden age or whatever you want to call it. Um, and so they now have this kind of security and the confidence in a way to actually tackle things that once seemed sort of untackleable because of the powers that be and FCC regulations and advertiser worries and all that stuff. Now they are so much less beholden to that. And so they actually can do have the opportunity. Um, I also think that, you know, television regularly employs a lot more people it seems like obviously you know film sets have huge stat you know crew and everything like that but like tv is a regular gig and so maybe it allows them to hire i don't know make better hires well yeah and i mean you can only hire one director for a film but you can have 10 or more directors in any given season of television you know what i mean so as bad as the statistics are for women directors or, or you know non-white male directors in television they are actually rapidly getting better. I saw this very fascinating panel put on by the FX network um, at the Television Critics Association uh, summer press tour, where it was just a panel of 10 women talking, 10 women directors talking about their experience going through Ryan Murphy's half foundation, which is, um, you know, an effort to have half the directors on television be either women or people of color. 
Donald Glover's or, or uh, yeah, Donald Glover's sort of giving a lot of credit away to like people who helped him uh, learn. And then when I talked to Bruce Miller, you know, way back earlier in this year about hiring Reed Murano to direct The Handmaid's Tale, that she directed like the first four episodes. She was very instrumental in setting the like distinct visual style, which some people liked and some people didn't, of The Handmaid's Tale. But she didn't have a ton, you know, she had a feature that she did and an episode of Halt and Catch Fire and she directed an episode of Billions this year, but she did not have like a long list but Bruce Miller both wanting to have a female eye on this project for you know certain reasons <laughs> is optic reasons and then like uh also just she did a really good pitch in the room and so he took a chance on her and I you know I think for better you know whether or not you liked the look of the handmaid's tale it's bold and distinctive and like was a big part of getting you know eyeballs on that show and so Taking a gamble on someone, Reed Morano is a cinematographer, chiefly. Taking a gamble on her really paid off. And that's the kind of risk that studios still feel, you know, with Patty Jenkins sort of moving the needle this summer. But, like, the studios feel still feel like they don't want to take if a woman doesn't have a huge CV behind her. She's not um, thought of for these big, high-profile projects. And so, I don't know. Kudos Kudos to Bruce Miller and kudos to Ryan Murphy and kudos to all the other white men TV who are sort of like opening the door for women to come in behind them, I think. Well said. <laughs> I, I mean, it's this it, like gigantic diversity problem that the entire industry is facing and, you know, has created for itself in a lot of ways. But uh, it is as much as it can, it can seem easy to be like, oh, well, they're doing better. So, they're, um, you know, congratulate them now. Uh, just seeing I just feel like last night's Emmys were a sign of progress happening, even if it feels too slow to a lot of people. Well, you know, and Sterling K. Brown gave this amazing speech about like how it had been 19 years since Andre Brower won in his category, Best Lead Actor in a Drama. And it's that's astounding, is it not? Yeah, oh, <laughs> like, definitely. You know, I mean, uh, Rami Malik, I think, was the first non white actor to win in a long time last year. But like when you consider all the incredible, you know, black performers on television, that statistic just was really from Sterling K. Brown was. And given, like, because Sterling K. Brown is one of those actors who's, like, everyone respects, and he's just so genial, and, you know, so it, like, didn't feel, like... I don't know, confrontational. It felt celebratory. And, um, but there is an undercurrent of confrontation there. And when you see things like photos from the party afterwards where it's Lena Waithe, Riz Ahmed, and Donald Glover all posing together, and it's like, you know, look what we did. <laughs> like, here's, here's what we did. Here are our statues. We, we are seen and we are heard. And, uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm very pleased. Sean Spicer shenanigans aside with what we saw this Sunday. Yeah, I, I think it's it's good and, and it did a lot to um I sort of wrote a little wrap up piece at the end of the night, like just sort of saying that like despite this horrible fucking Sean Spicer thing, uh, which, you know, we should not forgive anyone for, the rest of the show was a lot more hopeful and sort of exciting on a, on a sort of more progressive front. That said, I read did read some pieces, you know, yesterday and we're recording this on Tuesday. That I read some pieces this week, let's say, uh that, you know, saying, yes, there were some good wins, but let's not rest on laurels. And I think that that was a sentiment that Colbert, uh, as a host, kind of commented on where he said, you know, 
it's amazing that you can applaud while patting yourselves on the back at the same time, you know, <laughs> sort of saying, you know, like, let's not just like sit back and, con- con- you know, congratulate ourselves. And then I think mere minutes later, if not mere, mere seconds later, Sean Spicer came out and then we saw these pictures of Seth Meyers and James, James, Corden. James Corden and Alec Baldwin, you know, sort of making nice with him. And, and, and Alec Baldwin, you know, said something about how, you know, we shouldn't be so hard on Sean Spicer. And it's like, well, so, so how much of a bubble are we really living in here where on the one hand you can congratulate yourselves for, you know, give it, you know, letting a diverse array of people, but of select few into your club. And then at the same time, you know, mere hours later at a party, kind of cozy up to a guy who was perfectly willing to sell out any sense of principle or whatever to if he ever had any to to be the mouthpiece for a really insidious and racist and you know destructive organization or administration so while there was nice progress that happened on sunday night uh, or or a sense of progress anyway it, other aspects of the night did speak to a deeper more foundational problem it's really fascinating to me that you know like the spicer thing um, as we found out the next day was Colbert's idea, like sort of a last minute idea that Colbert had. And it's very odd moment of tone of humor because Colbert was on, you know, Jimmy Kimmel hosted Sean Spicer on his show. And that was like, I don't know, a, like a 20 minute took a fight between Sean Spicer and Jimmy Kimmel last week. And then Colbert went on Kimmel as a guest and gave him a hard time about it. So, like, it just was all very baffling to me, like, why he did that. And I don't, I don't think that he's sort of addressed it yet. I guess we'll find out eventually. But, like, I, I mean, I don't know. It, like, I don't, I don't, you know, as Richard very smartly pointed out in his review, like, I don't think it's worthwhile to I, I don't think we should forget that Stephen Colbert gave 99% of a really, really good performance as an Emmy's host. Yeah. Because he did. He did. Mm-hmm. Um, that one percent is really, <laughs> really bad. It's or maybe we should give it a yeah. give it a bigger percentage. But like you know, for the rest of the night, he was fantastic. So yeah. it's it's really it's too bad. I think also with the Spicer thing, he was the media facing guy. He was the press, you know, like so he has some commonality with people who were at the Emmys. And I think that for me, seeing these pictures of people, you know, shaking hands with them or or pat, you know, taking selfies with them at parties. There is this clubby sense in that world of, well, hey, he's famous. You know, (laughs) we're just we're just part of this group now. Famous people like to meet other famous people. It gives them a sense of access. And yeah, maybe they feel like there's something kind of edgy or quippy about about, you know, this guy in particular and meeting him. And maybe it's kind of a lark to tell your friends like, oh, I met Sean Spicer at a party. Um, And it just kind of goes to show like how low stakes actually a lot of these political problems right now are for them and are for me and a lot of other sort of privileged, you know, cis white men or whatever in this world. Um, and 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 to to sort of betray a sort of stated principle that 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 Colbert has on his show or Seth Meyers has on his show, just to kind of get a you know have a fun anecdote from a party, I found it a little bit more troubling than than you know sort of it's not easily kind of just like swept away. I don't think. I agree. I completely agree. Um, and I will be really fascinated to hear like eventually Colbert in his own words like 
talking about his like not not like defend yourself sir but like you know just i just i'm curious to hear him talk about like what he thought that that would achieve and how he feels about the fallout you know so it'll also be interesting uh because jimmy kimmel showed up briefly and i had kind of forgotten until he and colbert did that bit about being losers and kimmel made a joke about mixed up envelopes that he's hosting the oscars again next year and obviously watching yeah. all of this really closely yeah. and i think uh what these guys are all learning and whoever hosts the, hosts the golden globes will face this too is that uh no one's really ready to laugh about this stuff yet like the vibe is still anger for the moment and um it, like i um, mean you know, obviously there were plenty of trump jokes and you know some nice political statements last night but a lot of lessons will be learned from this i think I will say, I think you pointed this out in our Slack, Joanna, that at least one celebrity had a wonderful reaction to Sean Spicer being at a party. A Jason Isaac, yes, the, yes. yeah, who I I prompted he he wrote this he, he sort of took a photo of himself with and Sean Spicer's in the background and he sort of had this you know pretty harsh couple paragraphs about it, um, which then prompted me to look at the rest of his Instagram, which is wonderful. Oh yeah, Jason Isaacs is a treasure. He's great. Yeah, so I'm. I, I followed him, and I don't. I really don't follow very many like famous people. But I thought who um, who I don't know. Um, no, I don't follow many famous people um, <laughs> who I haven't chatted uh, with in Toronto. Right. But yeah, um, um, but uh, yeah, but yeah. Anyway, it was, so so people. If, if people want a little antidote to you know annoying pictures of Alec Baldwin with Sean Spicer, Jason Isaacs. It's it's also worth noting that in that like kind of now famous Anna Klumsky like reaction gif that Rachel Bloom is in the background like not having it. So Rachel yeah. Bloom also gets a point. <laughs> like She also sang uh, and danced live on stage. Points for that too. Yeah. I mean, that's the best introduction of the accountants I've ever seen on the board show. So. <laughs> and those accountants are uh, probably feeling pretty smug that they're 90 price not at, not the guys who mix up the envelopes this time. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thanks for listening. Again, award season has kicked off. It's a great time to talk to other people about the show, get them listening, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, which really help us helps us find those new listeners. Uh, you can find us all at VanityFair.com, and we're on Twitter at Little Gold Men. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Ryan Laws. And Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Mike's at Mike underscore Hogan. This episode was edited and produced by Jordan Bell, and thanks to Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for the best description of your little gold men hosts as they head into award season goes to Mike Hogan. These gorgeous, young, doomed people. 